Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3733 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Happy New Year to all of you out there that are celebrating the New Year, and it is such an honor. We just heard from a, a legendary um, broadcaster and uh, journalist, African Jamal Davis, and uh, now we get, are treated to uh, an innovator of percussion and consciousness expansion. Uh, what cats were doing on the East Coast and in the on the left coast. This cat was a pioneer in the Midwest in Chicago, leading large percussive ensembles, opening people's ears and minds to the possibilities of what rhythm can do. Because as we know on the Jake Feinberg Show, rhythm is love. And this guy is more active today than maybe he even was back then, which is so invigorating for peeps like me at 39, who sometimes are aimlessly fluttering around looking and searching for things to do. Never at a loss for anything. Dick Shorey, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Jake, my pleasure being here. Oh, what an honor, my friend. I it, Just so great to be able to connect with you and hear your voice. But um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, we, we let in with, uh, that was a track off one of your albums from 63 with Joe Morello called Night Train. And um, how did you first connect with Morello? Well, Joe uh, was a, a, an endorsee for Ludwig Drums. And at that time, I was vice president of Ludwig Drums uh, in charge of marketing and um, education and product design. 
and Joe was our top drummer, uh, jazz drummer in Dorsey. And so uh, I had done a lot of shows during the NAM convention at, at uh, when the NAM convention was in Chicago. We would do shows at the McCormick, well, at at the Orchestra Hall, where I played with the Symp uh, Chicago Symphony. But uh, these these shows I'd feature different uh, different artists and, and, and percussion, and Joe was was one of them, along with Gary Burton and Bobby Christian and a whole list of of uh, uh, people I I had worked with in the studio and as a uh, head of marketing for Ludwig. I was going to say, can you? Um, it wasn't. It's was so funny you bring this up because I did an interview in December, my first one with Steve Swallow, and he was talking about playing. It, it was not called the Nam Show at that time, though. It was the precursor to the Nam Show. Well. But he didn't remember the yeah. the point is he didn't remember the name of it and he was playing like twenty minutes on forty minutes off and you know Burton was playing the vibes whatever company uh, was sponsoring that well that was that was Ludwig yeah okay so 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 so, so but the point is that, that that was where and I don't exactly know what year it was but. Uh, it was, it was essentially around the late 60s, uh, it was a little bit later, but uh, Swallow actually snuck into the um, Gibson electric bass booth and uh, fell in love with the electric bass at that time, which was yeah, a sin. Well, for him, that, that, that was a big change. <laughs> but it was also so, it was so denigrated amongst the, the bebop or jazz purists. He was so intimidated. Oh, yeah. But he was getting, he was pretty bored at the convention in terms of he had seen all the exhibits and then when nobody was looking, he ducked into the Gibson one and started picked up a Fender bass and was like, I can't, my brain's telling me no, 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 but my heart and my hands are saying this feels incredible. So it just, you know, I mean, when you look back on it, Dick, um, did you guys, was there, was there a fundamental understanding that percussion sextets, percussion ensembles could lead to enlightenment well in in those years uh, in the say, let's go back to the 50s mm -hmm. uh, back in uh, 55 56 uh, there were three what you call full-time percussion ensembles in the country and maybe four there was a marimba, marimba ensemble that Gordy Peters started over at Eastman School of Music. Right. Oh, wow. Paul, Paul Price started a different ensemble. He, he liked um, sounds, inverted rice bowls and that sort of thing, and was a little more esoteric. But then, <laughs> uh, wait, 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 wait is, who was that cat? What was his name? Paul Price. Where was he at? University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Oh, that's what was in the water out there, because though they, he, some of the cats that came out of there were really wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then uh, I started the Northwestern University Percussion Ensemble.
but it was made up of uh, all the mallet instruments. And fortunately, I have had three students who were great jazz players on vibes and, and any mallet instruments you want. And uh, Bob Westberg, Chicago, uh, uh, Tom Davis out of Wyoming, uh, hmm. and uh, two others that, that were uh, studied with Roy Knapp and Bobby Christian uh, and uh, Jose Bethancourt, all in Chicago. So they came aboard, and they, they played very good jazz. And so I wrote the book. Uh, our concerts all included jazz percussion rather, rather than just all straight classical percussion. And from there, that went on. Uh, we were invited to play at the Midwest National Band and Orchestra Clinic, which is now really international. Uh, in fact, it was held last week. Uh, with 22,000 people at McCormick Place, and uh, bands and orchestras and ensembles from all over the world. But it started, my my thing started in Chicago at Northwestern. Uh, I did my first album the day after I got my degrees from Northwestern, and uh, and the following year I signed with RCA Victor, Records and we did uh, 16 albums at Orchestra Hall because uh, I like the, the the hall sound of, of uh, rather than a studio sound. Just so, I, I want I don't want to I just want to get this on the record before we because we're going to be all over the place. But again, going back to consciousness expansion, was that something that you were? I mean, obviously your ears were growing, but can you talk about that? Was there an enlightenment component to this for you? Oh, well, the enlightenment came as I was growing up in, in Ames, Iowa. And we had, you know, I was in the concert band, the marching band, the orchestra, and this and that, and the cassette band. And, but what was being written for percussion was very boring. Right. You know, and, and the instrumentation was very limited. So I started writing very early on because there wasn't anything really challenging to play that was in the, in the normal literature. So that carried on through my Air Force days uh, during the Korean War. Uh, in, into the jazz band and into the the concert band, uh, and I have to say that despite how good of, of training I got at Northwestern, nothing could touch the four years of of having to write for two television shows a week. Uh, you can't get that kind of experience. Outside of, of the of the military, and uh, ever since then, I've been working very 
closely with the military, particularly the Air Force Band in Washington, D.C. And wow. so I, I had this idea uh, of writing for mallet instruments like you would write, write for a sax section and, and mix the colors. Mm. Mm. And then uh, one time I, told, I asked Bob Westberg, I said, Bob, I want to write this blues tune and uh, I want to use a jazz harp on it. This is on one of my albums. But I want you to play jazz chimes. Play just a, a same type of chorus that you would play on vibes, only with two, two mallets on chimes. So that became Bob's trademark. Then we went on tour all the time, and he'd have to play this jazz chimes blues. And uh, uh, called chimed, I'm sure. And uh, so I, I, I like to expand the colors of of percussion, uh, and then oftentimes design instruments to give me colors that didn't exist. And uh, that that goes on even till to, to today. D okay, this um, is a very important. Um, did you have an experience? Uh, on the bandstand where the collective consciousness of the audience was raised because of the colors of sounds that your groups were making. I mean, ultimately, that is the experience of music that has gotten lost in our society now where, I mean, you go to a, an improvisational, uh, a melodic a jazz concert, and we've been trained to sit there and stare at somebody's facility. Uh, but can you talk about uh, how much you felt early on uh, in a live setting when you guys, when you were experiencing and intermeshing those colors of those different instruments and how it affected the collective consciousness of the audience and, and, and then feeding back to the co collective consciousness of the, of the group? Well, I was very fortunate uh, in the fact that my first album for RCA Victor, which was released in... Uh, fall of uh, 1958. We recorded it in June of 58 at Orchestra Hall, and it was a fall release. It was an album called Music for Bang, Baroom, and Harp. Yes. And it, it was as far out as RCA ever got in, in, in their uh, experimental uh, instrumentation. And the instrumentation was two guitars, string bass, keyboard player, uh, harp, um, and seven percussionists. Now, no one ever heard of such a thing. I also just want to let you know something. Music for, for the audience out there, music for bang, B-A-N-G, barroom, B-A-A-R-O-O-M, and harp. Uh, Dick, I just want to let you know that um, there's one copy of this album, which, and there's a lot of Dick Shorey albums on RCA that I've seen. I'm not sure if I've ever seen this one. It's going for a cool $170. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of it going up as far as $500. So anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. So that was, but they. No, but that, that album started my career uh, in concertizing. 
And so uh, it hit the charts, was on the charts for two years, the top ten for six months uh, in stereo, and it's, it, it introduced stereophonic sound. Uh, I'm sorry, it introduced stereo, stereophonic sound to the general public? Yeah, yeah. How, how did that happen? Well, there wasn't too many things out that that, that uh, demonstrated the the two channel. Oh. Uh, I had, I had, uh, we were marching. Uh, wait, what did we do? National Emblem March. I did a, a jazz version of National Emblem March, and Bobby Christian and I played the snare drums, and I think uh, Westberg played the bass drum, and. And we marched in from left to right, and we did all kinds of things of, of instrument placement to show the separation and use of, of two channels. But anyway, that that album introduced uh, was became a big demo record for all manufacturers of stereo equipment, and and that uh, started a oh a, a fifteen year uh, experience with. RCA, uh, where uh, I became the sound image of RCA, not only for percussion, but, but in, in their recording technology. But getting back to what, what effect on the audience, when you have a, a hit record, if you know what's coming next in your career, the next was to, to, to let's go on tour. So... Um, Columbia Artists and Management uh, came to me. They were the biggest concert touring, but mostly classical. They had they had Manavani, uh, Arthur Fiedler, and then Dick, Dick Shorey was added to that. <laughs> so I toured. <laughs> I, so I classic. Toured. <clears throat> yeah, uh, and we played we played a lot of of community concerts. In all sizes of uh, of cons all over the United States for the next fifteen years, uh, we well, it wasn't out steady. We were, we would do three tours a year, but the tours were all sold out, and and we played venues, a lot of venues down in Texas. I I knew that in the fall I had to be heading for Texas, and we played Texas A and M and. And uh, uh, most of the universities down there in that era. This is now in the early 60s. And uh, sometimes we're at community concerts. Sometimes it was a, a promotion in a, a major market. Uh, sometimes it was uh, a fill-in date on, on Monday in a town called uh, Slushwig, Iowa, or Big Springs, Nebraska. But and no, I don't care if it was Carnegie Hall, the Hollywood Bowl, Orchestra Hall, Chicago, or Slushwig, Iowa. The reaction of the audience was exactly the same because we had humor, we had great players, we had pretty good arrangements, and uh, the audience didn't really know what they were going to to hear when they got there because there was never anything like it. So, uh, but once they got there, 
we never fail to get a, a, several standing ovations during the night. Wow. I, I, I think I've only, out of all the years of touring, there was one night we didn't get a standing ovation, and that was my fault. Uh, my fault because I didn't have the guys rehearsed enough. But when that was the first night out, and I never allowed that again. So anyway, the, the recordings, there were a lot of them, uh, were, you know, were at, the, at that time were the best, that and the touring was the best possible media, media to reach an audience and uh, make it happen. Was it? I, I, I just. This is. This is. Uh, well, actually, you know what? I want you to sit back because you're cooking the groove right now, Dick. Uh, I want you to sit back and listen to this tune, uh, and then we'll come back and break it down. Okay. Okay. Great. Recognize the name of that tune? <laughs> yes. Now I'm gonna have a hard time. I'm gonna have a hard time. Uh, this is Baia, B-A-I-A, and that was off Bang Barroom and Harp. Yes. Unbelievable. That was uh, unbelievable. Uh, uh, that was that was like an uh, uh, Arthur Lyman sound. Absolutely, an point. island sort of vibe. Yeah. Yeah, and 
we we had no limits as far as genre of music. And we we would we had had some heavy classics. We had some uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, versions of we even tell overture and uh, with fire sirens and every and everything. So we we never we never took ourselves too serious uh, from a personal standpoint. We took ourselves very very serious on the music that we made. Oh, I dig, man. I I I wanted. Th- this is so important. I because uh, you know I, I'm not talking about when you became. Well, you can you can put it. Any way you want, but I mean, as far as allowing cats to stretch out and be themselves, um, I, I remember interviewing David T. Walker, a uh, great studio guitar player on Mo, Motown, and then also was part of Barry White's rhythm section, and Gene Page was the arranger for a lot of those sessions. And, and Those are great arrangements. They're great arrangements. Obviously, you have you know you know that because you know you, you I mean you are marinating in this stuff. But the point is, he would go in. Gene Page. It was very sparse. It was he might write some chord charts, but there was no arrangements, which allowed. And maybe he'd say to the drummer, you know, like let's get this kind of sort of gallop or feel. But it was it was not. Every T was not crossed. Every I was not dotted. And I want to know about Dick Shorey in terms of. You know, especially as it related to the live performances, how you struck the balance between allowing the between making sure that it wasn't a mess, but then also allowing the cats to improvise and be themselves. Well, we we had a lot of open air to, for the guys to stretch out on. <laughs> I I, uh, I I would write a basic rhythm uh, for each of the instruments and then say, okay, this is the basic uh, starting point, but now work off each other and, and what your basic starting point is and, and make it happen uh, spontaneously. Rather than writing out all the notes, I just wrote out a sketch of the sound that I wanted and let them and their artistry carry it from there. I, I absolutely. Now, did you, was that always the way you operated or was that something that you learned over time that that, you know, cause you, you talk to most guys in smaller groups ensembles and they say, well, I, you know, my idea of leadership is, you know, when I bring, when I hire people, I let them be themselves. Was that a learning curve for you? Was that something that sort of was always ingrained in you? No, I'd always always been a jazz drummer. A, tra- and, a trap you know, drum, a trap drummer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, wow. I grew up playing the drums. In fact, when I was a kid, I uh, was featured with the Meredith Wilson show <laughs> as the demon of the drums. Uh, and and of course, in those days, Gene Krupa was was the the idol of all drummers. <laughs> And so, but uh, I grew up in that era of the of the big band and, and the jazz combos, and I had the uh, the blessing of 
knowing the basics of what to do, but then I'd hire guys like Joe Morello and and uh, a whole list of players. And one day, one time, I I I I went through every album, every tour, and listed all my players that I had. And it was like a who's who of not only percussion but of trumpet players and reed players and piano players and. Uh, and I said, "Oh my God, no, no, no wonder I, I, I made it because I had the best blowers in the town." And that was in work. Whether I, was, I don't care, if it was Nashville, L.A., New York, or London. I had always or Chicago, uh, and, and we had some great players in Chicago in that era, and still do. So you know, it's I didn't do it all by myself. I had lots of help. Well, I want, to, I want to one, talk one to you specifically. Go ahead. Go, I don't, go please. Continue. One of the biggest helps was Gary Burton. Why? Well, uh, I, I'll tell you how he came about with me. I got a call from Chet Atkins one time from Nashville. <laughs> and Chet says, hey, when are you coming down to Nashville? <laughs> I said, I'll be down in two weeks. I gotta, I'm doing a few sessions down there. Uh because I was producing a bunch of country hits at that time, too. And I said, uh, what, what do you got? He says, well, I got a, a, a 17-year-old kid that keeps coming down out of north, uh, southern Indiana to Nashville, and he's going to blow you away on vibes. So I said, well, okay, well, keep him under wraps until I get down there. So I did, and he blew me away. And uh, to this day, uh, he is still the, the Paganini of, of the jazz vibes. No one's, no one's touched him. There's some great ones, you know, even Richardson, guys like that. But he's, he has a sound and a technique all of his own. And I just let him do his thing uh, on, on uh, playing choruses. Uh, I, I, I read out the basic part, and he 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 embellishes it as only he could. So, and, and the thing is, what I found with with Gary in the percussion section, uh, Westberg and Christian or whoever else I had on the other mallet instruments, would pick up his style, not his technique, but his style, and they would toss things back. Uh, two bars, four bars, eight bars uh, on the same tune that they're talking to each other. And it got better and better as they talked more and more. So uh, it was kind of a freestyle, but with a, with a fairly structured framework on the arrangements. And uh, we're putting the years on this in, this in the late 60s? Well, it went up all through uh, the 70s and into the 80s. But I'm talking about uh, when you when the he did an album here, um, uh, Country Roads and Other Places, and you talked about working down in Nashville. So, I mean, when you first connected with him, was that a, when was that in the in, in the 60s or the late 50s, or when did you first? Well, it was, it was in the 60s. Yeah. Unbelievable! This is unbelievable! Yeah. This is unbelievable! And you're telling me that you were 
you were producing country records in Nashville as well? Oh, yeah. We had some big hit, number one big hits. Gold, platinum, and platinum albums like uh, the Kendalls, father and son. Well, daughter, no, we, 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 I know about that Kendall story though. <laughs> that was in that sale with the Black Jazz Records, and that that one tune became a yeah. huge hit. But was it only, this? This was at the RCA Studios down in Nashville. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. On, this, I used other studios down there too. Uh, when when uh, Chet was busy in his studio, um, so I've used many of the studios down there over the years, and what? I and I had I had an office down there. I had I think six people in the office, plus a, a bevy of, of of country writers. But that's a whole another story. Well, but, but uh, yeah, we're just getting cooking here. I mean, it, it's like. Uh, um the idea here is when you were a bebop drummer, were you using the bass drum for accent and playing time on the cymbals? And who were the cats? Oh, yeah. Can you? Sure. Who, what were some of the small band groups that you were that you were part of, uh, you know, in the in the earlier 50s before, you know, these uh, bar well, room, before your, your. OK, in the early 50s. And maybe even late 40s. Um, I became the music director of a small radio station in Ames, Iowa, and programmed all the music. And at that time, I had a band. Uh, it was a five and six, or six-piece band. Trumpet, uh, sax player, double clarinet, drums, bass, uh, keyboard player. Sometimes, uh, yeah, that was it. And we would, I had pretty much free range that I can have that band on the air uh, at the noon hour, <laughs> three days a week. Wow. And uh, so, uh, and we were playing good tunes. I, now these guys were all much older than I was. Uh, Harry Shockey was a trumpet player. Was with out of uh, Charlie Barnett's band uh, out of uh, New York, and had moved to Ames, Iowa, to start a record shop and a hardware store. And so I had good players then, way over my head. Uh, but somehow I faked through it, and uh, so that was my early start on a drum set. And then when I went into the Air Force, uh, uh, I had to play. I was the only jazz player in the in the percussion section, so I had to play in the big band. Wrote for the big band. Uh, two combos. Uh, in those days. Uh, a, a musician in the Air Force band uh, would would sing in the glee club, would play in the uh, one or two combos, would play in the big band, play in the marching band, and play in the concert band. And it depended on what day and at what time you're always rehearsing. And uh, on 
Wednesday night we play the NCO club. Thursday night play the, the uh, another club on the base. Friday night the the uh, service club, and Saturday night the officers club. <laughs> so <laughs> you, but I mean, but I mean, the, but I mean, you know, you know, Dick, that the only way that musical vocabulary can expand is on the bandstand and you were on the bandstand playing all these different styles all, all the time. Every night. Every night. Every night. And that's what the For younger cat, the younger cats today, there are no place that there is just not a propensity. I mean, also there, the other thing is you were playing for, regular audiences you were playing for military veterans and spouses and just regular people people that belong right. to the clubs so like they would let you know if you were cutting it or not as opposed to today when you're basically if you're in academia and you're having a jam session you're probably playing with 20 30 other cats who are kind of at the high end of music and they're not really you know patrons of the arts so it's hard for you to really develop your own individual sound I mean, it's really a remarkable situation that uh, what you live through, and and how much alacrity and elasticity uh, you were able to play with because you were playing so much live. Right, right, and you know, I still to this day work with with the military bands. Uh, in fact, last week Colonel Lang, who is the commander of the U.S. Air Force Band, in fact, of all U.S. Air Force Bands worldwide, was here, uh, stayed stayed at the, our house uh, last Friday night, last Saturday night, the Saturday before Christmas. And uh, he was in town for this big music show, but I do a lot of work with him. Uh, and... Uh, Still, I'm, I'm working in that venue because they still have some of the best musicians in, in the world, whether it's country, jazz, uh, uh, serious uh, orchestra and, and band music. Uh, Small group and, and big band? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say because the, the the Airmen of Note was the a, Airmen of Note is a phenomenal band. It was a monster group. I mean, I, uh, the the Cats. But were you playing? I mean, I guess that's the other thing. When I interviewed Julian Priester, who's a Chicago cat, he grew up in the in fifty three, fifty four. He was singing spirituals in his dad's church. He was playing with Howlin' Wolf, and then and he was playing with Sun Ra. Did you get a yeah. chance to play with some of the, the blues cats early on? I have a feeling you did because you paid homage to them when you opened Ovation Records. Well, I didn't play with them. I produced them on records. <laughs> uh, oh, um, Muddy Waters. Uh, on, on, uh, what, on what label, though? I mean... Uh, uh, ovation. Muddy on Ovation? Uh, very early on. Uh Willie Dixon was on Ovation. That that I long. know. That I I didn't know about Muddy. Muddy uh, never got too much uh, exposure. But uh, but I guess my point was that the, the 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 blues, Mighty Joe Young, you produced as well. 
I just yes. curious about your your understanding of when you got established in a small group and you're playing in Chicago, how much the blues was alongside the jazz and how much that shuffle beat, while seemingly simple, is actually incredibly complex and sophisticated to play it with a good feel and how you if you were because all the listen i don't care if it's charles neville i don't care if it's john coltrane or sonny rollins or albert tootie heath all those cats were playing in r&b bands before they were playing bebop so i kind of wanted to know i i didn't i didn't have the opportunity i was so busy uh, and so many things at once uh, that I never had the opportunity to really play with any of the blues guys. I knew all of them, and all of them in town had, had played on sessions, whether they played harmonica or or bass uh, or, or who they were. Uh, but I never had a chance to to, to play with to play drums with them. I I had real blues drummers that would play better than I did. But I also had great bass players and guitar players uh, that that were into the the real funk times and and the really authentic blues. Uh you have any names? I mean, I, I'm familiar with like you know the the session cats like Satterfield. Sa- so you played with Satterfield. Satterfield was one of my bass players. Oh my god! And was he playing upright or electric? Electric. In the fifties. Sixties. In the sixties. Yeah. Okay. So this is so it was it was you had guys like. Uh, Maurice Jennings and Satterfield and and those cats that you were, yes. you were using. Uh, and yeah, they... Maurice Maurice was phenomenal. And Phil um, Upchurch on guitar. Oh yeah. You get Upchurch and Satterfield and Jennings. Wow. <laughs> and throw in. Uh, uh, that, that that that's when you throw away your drumsticks. Well, I mean, the, the the revelation for me is that, I mean, Satterfield, I, I'm just trying to figure out, did Chess, did Satterfield come, bef- was he on the scene before Jamerson at Motown? Probably a little after. Mm-hmm. He was a little younger. Yeah, because you throw in Richard e- Richard Evans too. I mean, it's just I can't even. Im- you throw away the Dick Shorey was throwing away the drumsticks when when Maurice uh, Morris Jennings was there, and then all these other yeah. all these other dudes too that were just like just bad. Well, Vernel Fournier. I'm not sure when he came into the picture, but um, that uh, was later. Yeah, it was later. So so um, when you when you move when did you actually move to Chicago? Well, I finished my my tour of duty, and I came to Chicago. Let's see, '54. Um, my wife 
Then I got married in 54, and I moved to Chicago uh, to go, uh, finish my degrees at Northwestern University. And uh, But I soon got involved in the studio scene uh, and was teaching ensembles and that sort of thing at Northwestern while I was going to finishing my degrees. Did, did you, um, you were playing jingles and, and, uh, in the studios and, or did you, yeah. or, were, or, or, and this is the, this is where the rubber meets the road. Did you play as an accompanist on sessions that maybe never showed up on records prior to you becoming a leader? Uh, yeah. You better I you. I it. need to know that the, the albums you were on because, like, I mean, Tom Radke played with the Dells. He doesn't get any credit for that. Um, Tom I, Radke is one of the greatest drummers I ever had to work with. Uh, he's the, and he's a beautiful human being. I mean, again, I have just gotten channeled in the last two or three weeks into the deepest Chicago. Excuse me, the Chicago connection. I did up church and Cash McCall and Cleve Eaton a few years ago, and then suddenly out of the blue, I talked to Paul McCartney's drummer, uh, Denny Sywell, who was steeped in jazz. Uh, he connected me with Radke, who then connected me with Ron Steele, who then connected me with Dick Shorey. So it, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling this this vein of, of Chicago rhythm. Um, if, if you want to hear Radke play yeah. in a phenomenal set of drums, uh, get the Carnegie Hall album, my, my Carnegie Hall Yeah, album. I regret it. I had it at one time, and I gave it. I mean, Paul Horn, Morello, Radke, Ronnie Elliston, Steele was running the tape out of the van, and then there's Dick Shorey leading the charge, and Steele was playing guitar. But again, I, yeah. I, I want to go back. What albums, What can you name one or two albums you were on that you were not credited for as playing a trap set? Well... By that time, I was playing everything else. <laughs> All right, just um, percussion maestro. What what album can I look for? Well, a lot of David Carroll albums. David Carroll. Yeah. C a r r o l l. Yeah. Now what? His I, real name was was Nick Schreier. But uh, Mercury Records was uh, headquartered in Chicago. And. And Nook or David Carroll was ahead of A and R, and um, he did a lot of recording. In fact, copied some of my stuff and had me write some stuff for him. And then it got so that Bobby Christian, Frankie Rulo, and I were first call on all his albums. And I remember he's like, he called me, are you going to be in town on this date? Uh, we got a, a, a session I want you to do. And it could be the clubbing off strings, or it could be David David's uh, sessions. And uh, I did I did some uh, some writing for him at the, at that time too. So uh, Chicago. In that era was was kind of the hub, even more so than the east or west coast, 
in in the development of percussion the total the total percussion explain that explain this is absolutely essential explain that well first of all the two main rec, uh, drum companies at that time were were Ludwig and Slingerland. They were Chicago based. Campco has a was a small company just beginning at that time, and uh, but you had teachers coming out of the Second World War, like Bobby Christian and um, oh. I just want to read this. David Carroll was born in Taylorville, Illinois. He wrote and recorded many songs, played with musicians such as Tiny Hill, Bobby Christian, Earl Backus, Mike Simpson, Sarah Vaughn, Vic Damone, Patti Page. Uh, he was a musical director at Mercury, no mention of Dick Shorey. Uh, he was associated with the Smothers Brothers. I mean... Uh, yeah, he left, he left uh, to go to the West Coast with the Smothers Brothers. But did you play on jazz out? Like, did you play on like any uh, Sarah Vaughan albums or uh, Patty Page? Any, any? Did you play on any of those albums? No. Um, I I conducted a lot of those those singers when I was music director of McCormick Place, Harry Crown Theater. Wow. Art. Wow. But that was later, or was that at that time? Yeah, no, I was in the 70s, late 70s, 80s. All right, I mean, I didn't mean to cut you off there. So you had the two major drum companies there. Continue on. Plus a, a bevy of teachers. Some great, turned out some great students. And, well, and let's, uh, be, and let's be clear, Shorey, they were all self-taught. There was no jazz curriculums. They were all self-taught. They were all self-taught drummers. So they were bringing. It wasn't like the saturation of information now and books about everything. And it was all self-taught. So it was all individualized and unique. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And is and is and do you think that that spawned the holistic? And is that why you had all these teachers who were all self-taught? <clears throat> And therefore, and you have the companies there. And how was that different from what was going on in New York? Because, I mean, I've interviewed Dick Hyman and Bucky Pizzarelli. Those guys were doing jingles and all that stuff. So how was it different than Oh, the sure. Sure, they were. Yeah. But I think from the percussion side of things, the drumming side of things, uh, a lot of our guys immigrated to New York and L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and but they started out here in Chicago, and uh, <clears throat> the Anderson brothers, for instance, ended up in the West Coast. Tremendous uh, players. Uh, <clears throat> there's guys that. You know, I had a 30-year relationship with with Hank Mancini, and oh, I would recommend guys that were heading towards the West Coast, and and he would hire them. Uh, one of my trumpet players and the Anderson brothers and that sort of thing, and uh, Hank and my relationship was 
was all during the period of Moon River and Peter Gunn days of Wine and Roses and the Mancini Andy Williams tours. Uh, when they would come to the Midwest, they'd use my band. When I go to the West Coast, I'd use his band. Oh man! And uh, in between, we collaborated on a lot of writing assignments, uh, mostly from ideas for new sounds. And uh, for instance, he was doing. He called me one day. And he said, "I'm doing. I'm doing an, an elephant uh, film." <laughs> I said, "Oh, an elephant film? Yeah." He says. What would you think if I use on, on the lead line eight French horns and eight bass flutes? <laughs> I said, I can't even imagine that sound because we could, I could never be able to find eight bass flutes in Chicago. He says, but you forgot I'm in Hollywood. He says, yeah, okay. I said, well, I, I got an idea for you. Go out and find a steam calliope for the astronauto sound to go along with the, 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 those instruments. He called me back two days later. I got the I got the steam calliope, and, and that's that was baby's uh, baby elephant walk from Hatari. From Hatari. Yeah. Now, did you play? Because I'm looking here. There's baby elephant walk on all. You've caught that on your albums. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, but then. On Hatari, on Hatari, that was was that his band or was were you playing on that? No, that, that's his band. That's his band. That's a bunch of uh, his uh, studio regulars on the West Coast. I got you know I just I wanted to, th there was just so much regional activity as it related to percussion and I, I I'd be remiss I just found this album I'm having a ball with it, um, and I want to see. Uh, what you feel about it. the name it's on RCA uh, yeah. and uh, 1961 and uh, they do they do uh, list other the RCA Victor albums you will enjoy and I'm just going to read those first Son of Drum Suite Al Cohen and his orchestra Wild Percussion and Horns of Plenty New Percussion Ensemble Dick Shorey Percussion from Melody to Madness, Music to Break Any Mood, Dick Shorey. Uh, skin Tight, Marty Gold. Uh, and then a Grand Canyon Suite Beethoven by Grof, G-R-O-F-E. But this album that I'm holding is titled The First Percussion Sextet, led by director C. Warren Hard. Did you know C. Warren Hard? No, I did not. The guys in the group were Bob Swan, Earl Zindars, Bruce Spencer, Chuck Spees, Ralph Roberts, and Doug Allen. And these guys came out of, I want to say it's Ohio, Ohio State, 1947. Okay. Um, I knew the percussion teacher there. Uh, and they... What year was that? Well, it says, uh, this was 61. It says, the first percussion sextet must be credited with unusual foresight because it was formed in 1947 at Ohio State. Needless to say, the founding fathers were all student drummers. By 51, the group was proficient enough in making melody as well as rhythm to appear on TV and in concert before Eastern schools and colleges. Um, 
Yeah. Part of the impact. Yeah, I, I just Spees, Rob. Do any? Did you cross paths with those guys? I mean, you were right. I mean, they listed yeah. two of your. Yeah, app. sure. Yeah. A lot, a lot of them, uh, you know, had names. They that they they earn their their stripes, and uh, Ohio State uh, even today has has a pretty good drum line. If you saw the any of the, the bowl game, they, they still still play it. Yeah, I'm. I just want to see a smaller band swinging the swinging the blues, man. I you know the big band marches <laughs> can't get off on that sometimes. But anyway, go ahead. Well, I tell you, I I love blues. I I love uh, and funk. Well, I know I know so me. That's where that's where good. Every album on Ovation and Black Jazz is the great. There's not every single one speaks to that cross pollinization of you had uh, uh, basically um, this combination of. It was, I'm just going to read it here. You had, in my mind, it was halftime funk thing into a straight time into a shuffle. That stuff was happening on every one of those records. So it was a combination yeah. of jazz, blues, and funk. And so you nailed that. Yeah. But I'm just talking about like, I mean, this album actually, this fir- it says the first percussion sextet was recorded at West Virginia University. So, I mean, these were, these were like huge, these were like m- percussive ensembles done to a live audience uh, played spontaneously with joy. I mean, it's like, um, and, and I guess the one reason I'm fixated on it is because now I, I've talked to so many trap drummers and they'll be hearing somebody play and they'll say that has to be a machine and they walk in and it's a human being playing machine parts. Like that's where we've gone. Yeah. That's where we've gone to now. You know, it's unfortunately, it's very scary for just, just yeah, I mean, I mean, it, well, because you, you crunch that into the ears of, of younger people and they'll, they can't detect authenticity. And you guys were no. all about authenticity. I just, how much of that has carried you through the drive for authenticity, the fact that you are still cooking today, the idea that you still want to create that level of truth in the music? Well, it carries on today as, as it did 50, 60 years ago. I, um, I'm I'm more exper- experimental, uh, but there's nothing beats a good acoustic player playing with a lot of heart. And I don't care what kind of a, a ballad or a funky driving piece or a, a, a stomping big band chart. Where you're where you're reading off the trumpet player's parts to catch all the 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 hip cues, uh, and you know, uh, music today, unfortunately, there aren't too many schools that teach really good jazz. They. There are, yeah, North Texas State, you'll never beat them. They've, I've worked with those guys way back when they, years ago. And, and there are schools turning out some wonderful guys. The uh, University of Iowa, for instance. Tom Radke studied there. Sure. Max but, Bennett, Max but, Bennett was there, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Here's my, you know, I want to, I want to, this is so important. Explain why they're, they're, they're cranking out technical monsters, but why it's to me, when I listen to jazz now, it's very harmonically complex, but not rhythmically. It's not rhythmically complex. Well, you you had Morello and Brubeck carry it on, introduce, you know, six, eight, five, nine, eight, and so forth. Absolutely. That that was the introduction to really some interesting time signatures. And uh, this guy is doing some, some of that. Uh, right now, uh, things are focused, as you say, on the harmonies. Um, but you still, the rhythm section still gives you, gets motion going. And, uh, well, I, Here, I, You know what I want to get at? Here's, I, I'm stretching you all out over the, but I mean, like, I just talked to, a, you know, Dr. Uh, you know, Lonnie Smith, right? The B3 player. Yeah, he um, I was just talking, you know, he's still doing it. And he is one of the few cats that is doing something that I think is like that. If more people did, we would be able to expand musical vocabulary. He's he's kicking bass pedals on his B3 and he's allowing his freeing up his drummers to play melodically. Um, We've become so locked into. uh, Where's the one? Uh, Got to keep time. Uh, I just, the, the idea of freeing up the rhythms, if you don't free up the rhythm section, then it just sounds, well, that's why the, we have, you know, drum machines came in, you know, somehow human beings couldn't keep time or keep their own time. But it's like, that is what's preventing, that's why there's a stagnation. There's a formula trip going on in jazz. And at the same time, there's just no places that any any major urban center. There's just not music in our culture is taken on a totally different significance. So you don't have Mr. Kelly's, uh, you know, um, uh, London House, the Cloisters, and uh, uh, Blue Note. The yeah, I mean you. The, I mean you know you you don't have places you don't have places for cats to um, work the, work out their angst six nights a week in an upholstered sewer somewhere for a month at a time. And that's, right. that's the problem. It, you, I mean, it, I'm sure these, the, I mean, and, and again, at the same time, you know, some of these schools, you know, the greatest players are not always the best teachers. <laughs> so it's like, I, I feel for the younger cats. I don't have solutions for it other than going back and tapping into the wisdom of uh, just Hank Mancini and you, the dedication to wanting to create new colors, new sounds, build new instruments, right. invention. All the pioneers of music, Bobby Christian, Dick Shorey, Emil Richards, Lou Harrison. This goes on and on. Harry Parch. These cats were yeah. built. Th- these guys were inventing stuff. They were never content. Yeah. The music is, when you go to school now, And they say, yeah, you're going to learn jazz and you're going to learn everything there is about jazz and then you're going to do it. As last time I checked, the pioneers of the music were never content. They were always searching for new and fertile ground. But yet experimentation commercially now is absolutely a death knell. And that's part of the issue. When you were cranking these records out, 
it was they let you do they let it breathe man they let the music breathe now it's just play it safe play it light and be conservative because people just want a formula trip and that to me is about as boring as it gets so when experimentation when you can't quantify that um commercially then you're not going to grow vocabulary music well that's the problem the categories that we have today are very limiting on on how they allow you to stretch out and and the the drum machine uh, there's things you can do with a drum machine to be very creative as long as you don't let it take over your life <laughs> and pro tools <laughs> but that's the other thing dude all the singers that david carroll worked with i mean i mean they they were they they were really good they were really good at what they did you guys were musicians more than craftsmen you were really good now but with pro tools if you're beautiful looking and you have a lot of twitter followers then you know they can fix they, they can say, how did I sound? The engineer can say, terrible, but we can fix it. So, I mean, it, we're slouching towards Gamora in some ways. I mean, this is like a very dangerous... But, but where, where did the heart go? Where did the heart go, Dick? That's the... Where did the heart go? And it's, and you know, it's, it's just... What's inspiring to me is just the fact that you are still out there kicking butt and doing it because there, there are no easy answers. You know, greed, the greed factor is so insane now uh and um the idea of just making a reasonable living off of doing being a studio shark or playing a pizza joint for six nights a week that stuff is is become well it's disappearing well not even that not only that it's just uh, the the whole concept that a musician's music is a musician's gift to the world and because music is unquantifiable you can't pay them you can play for the you can play for the <laughs> true, door. You, true. you can play for the door, or or, or, or you can yeah. or you can pay to play. You actually, Dick, you can. Can you imagine if somebody came up to you and said, "Hey, Dick, you, you can play on this session. You have to pay to play." <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty yeah. scary. You know, it's it's a it, it shows it shows a, a dangerous slant. But you know, listen, we uh, we're just getting going. We just cooked for sixty seven minutes here. Um, could we? Could we? <laughs> We're just getting started with Dick Shorey, a legendary uh, multi-instrument, multi-percussionist and band leader and uh, really stretching the lineage. Could we do um, part two um, uh, same time next week? Would that work? Yeah, what the, uh, Wednesday. And we'll say, we'll say uh, 1 p.m. Chicago time, if, that, if that's okay. Sure. All right. And we'll, and we'll definitely do a dive into the... Uh, ovation black jazz at that time but uh you know it's important to paint the the full picture of dick shorey and and the impact that you've had on on our culture because uh, as we've just identified it's changing and uh not really for the better i i I think chicago remains uh it may not have the regional sound it once did i think there's only one place in america actually that has a regional sound and that's new orleans now but yeah i think i think you're right I think there are still places in Chicago that that do have the jam sessions and that get it. 
I could be wrong. I haven't been there in a long time, but I think. Well, she... there's no there's there's no London house that to to promote the quartets and, and uh, piano uh, oriented uh, acts. All like... I'm saying is this: that that in the last listen, being able to interview Radke, who was playing with Novak. I just interviewed Ray Neapolitan. The dude was playing um, in a jazz trio, and the other jazz trio was with Chuck Domenico. And Chuck Domenico drove a truck at O'Hare Airport. I mean, this it was yeah. just like bubbling. And then, and then of course, Steele's telling me the soulful string, strings were getting some momentum off these hits. And next thing you know, they're in the London house playing live with a string section and a jazz harp player. I mean, it was just, it yeah. was, it was just part. And now it's like, okay, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go to the Jazz Standard to see Pat Martino, who's a dear friend of mine who I love dearly and is still playing his butt off. And yet all I see is waiters and waitresses coming to get drink orders and dinner orders, getting the food out, paying the check, set ones done, empty out, come back in. You know, it's become this upper crust thing, and it's it's just... not really doing it for me, really. I mean, it's, yeah. it's always been a street yeah. music, you know. And and then you, and then obviously the biggest factor where you, you continue to make residuals and is just the, there's no studio scene anymore. So it's become a an efficiency model and it's become a money saving thing. And uh, so these are things we have to work through. And uh, I am so glad you are still here and rock. And uh, we are just going to get started. And I, I'm, we're targeting March to. Uh, uh, my my partner and I to to get out and to Chicago to see you and Steele and anybody else who was involved with Ovation and uh, and hence the Black. Well, jet. there's there's a few of them still left, but the, but they're they're dying off pretty fast on this. Hey, I need to get to them just like I need to get to the West Coast. I just talked to a guy out there, and he's hitting me to to uh, this guy Frank Jackson, who's 91, and was yeah. was a musician who played when Charles Sullivan was running the entire Fillmore district, when it was a black capitalist district, you understand James, yeah. James Brown, yeah. and the, the funk and the, that you love so much Dyke and the black, those guys were doing the entire circuit. It was all black, black run, black owned my generation and younger generations need to know the truth, whether they want to accept it is a different story, but they need to know the truth. Yeah. So that, you know, yeah. Listen, um, do I have your email, by the way? Do you have an email? Yeah, I don't know whether I want to give it on the, on the oh, yeah, I'll, Okay, I'll call you back because I want to send you a copy. I want to send you a copy of this interview. So um, okay. I'll, I'll call you back on my phone. Uh, we're locked in for next week's set, too. Dick Shorey, it was such a great hang, and we're going to leave today uh, with a tune by Dick Shorey's new percussion ensemble. Uh known as stumbling so dick thank you for taking the time man and, oh, yeah, that, and, that was that was a, 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 a just a, a joke a, go ahead and play it i will and uh and i and i'll give you a call back on my uh, on my phone uh, uh uh after we wrap up okay All right. great bye-bye Thank you. 